Hello. Welcome to this week's edition of the Africa Climate Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Sophie Mbogo. Last week, we talked about challenges and opportunities climate change present for the African continent. This week, we are looking into a critical issue for Africa, adaptation. As you know, flooding, droughts, landslides, cyclones are becoming intense and more frequent. So this conversation has been made possible by a collaboration with the African Development Bank Group, in particular its Climate Change and Green Growth Department. The African Development Bank Group is the continent's premier development finance institution. I'm so humbled today to host the Climate Adaptation and Green Growth Manager, Alhamdu Dosumar, and Climate and Environment Manager, Gareth Phillips, both from the African Development Bank Group. Alhamdu, if we just start with you, why is adaptation so important for the African continent? And when you talk about adaptation, what exactly are we talking about? Great. Uh, thank you for this opportunity. Uh, as you know, uh, to address climate change, we have two strategies. Mm-hmm. The first one is mitigation, which enables us to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, which, as you know, uh, as a major cause of, of the human-induced climate change. And the second strategy is adaptation. Uh, adaptation has a particularity that um, it offers an alternative solution, given that uh, all efforts that you put in place to reduce greenhouse gas emission will still result in residual climate change. Yeah. So you still need uh, adaptation to, to address the residual uh, impacts of, of climate change, which affects uh, you know, com- countries, communities, especially those with limited coping uh, mechanism and capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for Africa, adaptation is a priority because mm-hmm. Africa is, uh, you know, has, is the host of the most of the least developed countries in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and evidence has already shown that um, the continent is the most vulnerable continent in the, in the world, uh, despite being the less contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah. Um, and to date, as, as we speak, uh, adaptation comes with uh, a great sense of urgency for Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a couple of months ago, as you know, uh, extreme events, in particular flooding, have devastated East and West Africa, yeah. resulting in significant devastations. Within a month, from August to September, uh, more than 1.2 million people in 12 different countries have been affected by flooding. Mm-hmm. Um, countries um, are still in trajectories of being affected by floods during the monsoon season, which will still continue up until uh, November, so this month. Mm-hmm. Uh, a country like Sudan, for instance, has declared three months a state of emergency over flooding that caused enormous damage and cost lives. Uh, this adds on what happened already one year ago with uh, cyclones Idai and Kenneth, mm-hmm. which has de- which have devastated Mozambique, uh, Zimbabwe, and Malawi, mm-hmm. with uh, 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 a damage costed at about two billion US dollars, and uh, with uh, more than uh, one thousand people that which which that who died. Mm-hmm. So this shows you how you know urgent, important, and critical this adaptation for the world, and particularly for Africa, which is the most affected region. 
mm-hmm. uh, due to the impacts of climate change. Absolutely. Is adaptation seen as priority when it comes to international negotiations on climate change? Unfortunately, globally, uh, attention is more on mitigation than adaptation. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite uh, the urgency of the matter, adaptation is still seen as um, not a priority, especially in developed countries. But uh, these things are, are, are changing because we see that some uh, developed countries are also considering having uh, adaptation strategies. So as part of the um, global uh, climate change negotiations under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, mm. we have seen that um, you know uh, adaptation is getting uh, some level of attention now mm-hmm. since uh, Paris, uh, the COP21 that took place in Paris in in December 2015. Yeah, uh, you know, you know, developing countries, especially least developed countries like African countries have uh, you know strongly advocated for adaptation mm. being part of the new agreement mm. uh, so it resulted in the fact that um, now the paris agreement has a global goal on adaptation which is a, a good uh, achievement as compared to the previous years mm. um I, but this may also affect you know if we move towards you know uh, implementing the paris agreement effectively this will change the narrative um uh, for instance, on finance, as you may know, as as, as we speak today, mm. 90% of global climate finance goes to mitigation. Mm-hmm. Only 10% is dedicated to adaptation. Mm. Um, but uh, we are hoping that with the global goal on adaptation, we are able to, you know, to, to increase the adaptation finance. You know, mm. it is very low as compared to the to the needs and the, the priorities. And even at um, for disaster risk management, you know that um, only 12% of the funds dedicated to disaster risk management are allocated to prevention, you know, disaster prevention, mm-hmm. compared to 88% that is uh, allocated to emergency response. Yeah. So globally, uh, I think there is thing the the, the the situation is not that good, but mm-hmm. we are hoping that uh, it it has to change because adaptation is no longer an issue of uh, developing countries or least, least developed countries, mm. but it is also an issue for developed countries. As uh, you may remember, mm-hmm. uh, this, the, some cyclones are affecting directly developed countries. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, uh, in 2003, 2005, you know that um, cyclones have affected the United States. Mm. Uh, they are still affecting the tropical cyclones before the they, they, you know, while they affect the, the Caribbean, for instance, they also affect uh, usually the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, Europe has also been affected. You know, you remember that um, heat wave in 2003 that mm-hmm. affected Western Europe. You know, it's an adaptation issue. So I, I, I observe that um, this uh, narrative is, uh, is, 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 uh, is changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, adaptation is no longer uh, a localized issue. It's mm-hmm. not an issue for poor countries like African countries, but it is getting a lot of momentum uh, as a global priority. As, as you may also know, uh, uh, there is a creation of the Global um, Center on Adaptation uh, that took place recently, and uh, Africa is hosting the regional office for that uh, Global Center. Mm-hmm. So with those initiatives, you know, at, at global level, we, 
we are hoping that um, the narrative will change and uh, adaptation is no longer going to be considered as um, an issue of uh, poor countries only. Okay. I'm listening to you speak and I'm, um, I'm thinking to what extent, and, and maybe you just want you to explain how adaptation and development are interrelated together, especially in the case for Africa. Yes, I think uh, adaptation and development are interrelated, especially in Africa. Mm. Uh, and in this continent, I believe that uh, adaptation should be uh, considered as an integral part of uh, the development planning of our countries mm-hmm. because uh, most of our economies uh, rely on sectors that are climate sensitive, mm. including agriculture, uh, natural resources, water, coastal infrastructure, etc. All of those sectors are, 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 are climate sensitive, while they are the main uh, you know, uh, sectors for the economy. So uh, responding to this um, vulnerability requires adjustments in the economic systems in Africa. Uh, and uh, this imperative of adaptation and uh, resilience building have to be uh, uh, included into uh, uh, national development plans. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we said, the adaptation and development are related and uh, there is no way we should plan for adaptation without mainstreaming it into uh, our development strategies. Mm-hmm. So for, for me, uh, building climate resilience into all our development sectors uh, is, uh, is important. And this has to come with uh, great opportunities as well, uh, because I see an opportunity here when you mainstream uh, resilience and adaptation into development planning, there is an opportunity to, to, to boost your economies with high returns and also uh, you are sure that uh, you are sure economic prosperity and build resilience into your your economic system so ultimately uh, you know there is a trade off in uh, you know uh, you know linking um, adaptation with uh, development in particularly in africa mm. where the two are the two sides of the same coin and what are the challenges that come to that the fact that uh, our planning systems mm. our budgeting and pro- programming processes do not take into consideration adaptation. It's it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. You know, when you a country adopts its budget every year, mm-hmm. uh, uh, we see that in Africa there is no provision for adaptation. Mm-hmm. There is no provision for resilience building. Uh, so that that's an issue. Another challenge is uh, the the limited financing. Mm-hmm. Uh, currently, you know, the finance that is available to uh, adaptation is very limited uh, in Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, figures uh, have been displayed and um, uh, there is evidence that shows that um, the economic cost of climate vulnerability in the continent is very high. Mm. Uh, it is estimated that uh, starting this year uh, up to uh, 2030, uh, Africa will lose uh, between 7 to 15 billion every year mm. due to the, to the devastating effects of climate change. So this is a challenge African countries have to to, to, to address and if uh, there is no action this 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 cost will will rise to 45 to 50 billion yeah. per year by 2040 yeah. uh, and it is it it, it it has it will go up and up so uh, there is there is something that uh, African countries have to be aware of that uh, inaction uh, in terms of adaptation and building resilience, is going to have a lot of impact in the development systems and mm. uh, this is a challenge they have to address and not only african countries but also the international community 
as I have uh, said earlier, mm. you know, 90% of global funds on climate change goes goes to, to mitigation, and only 10% uh, is affected is allocated to adaptation. Yeah. This is not uh, sufficient. Um, and uh, but there are opportunities as well, uh, despite the challenges. Uh, mm-hmm. Some challenges. And let me also emphasize on some of them. Um, in Africa, we know that adaptation is a priority. Yeah. We know that financing is limited, mm-hmm. but we also observe that there are initiatives that are going on, but the challenge is the fragmentation of mm-hmm. those initiatives. There are too many initiatives, small scale initiatives that are uncoordinated and uh, and they come with a lot of you know um, um, uh, transaction costs. So I think uh, we need to fix that. And I believe that the creation of the Africa Office for the Global Center on Adaptation will really provide us with an opportunity to ensure a better coordination among the various adaptation initiatives across the continent. Mm-hmm. Um, other challenges also in Africa include the limited um, you know, expertise in the countries Mm-hmm. And also the issue relating to the barriers to the penetration of uh, clean technologies in the continent. Uh, these are uh, other challenges as well as the lack of governance, the limited coordination, as I said, lack of prioritization of adaptation, as I already said. Um, I think uh, these are issues that um, are uh, undermining uh, the, the, the delivery of adaptation action in the, in the continent. And uh, at the international level, uh, the the not fulfilling of the climate finance commitment by developed countries is an issue. Mm. As you may know, developed countries have committed to deliver 100 billion per year by 2020 as climate finance to developing countries. And this commitment is not met as as we speak. And this comes with challenges also to countries that are mostly affected by by the climate change impacts. Mm, Absolutely. But, But what opportunities exist? Opportunity exists, of course, um, because uh, investing in climate resilience uh, is a smart economics mm-hmm. uh, as adaptation uh, investments uh, consistently deliver high returns with uh, benefit cost ratios ranging from 2-1 to 10-1, according to the recent uh, report by the Global Commission on, on Adaptation. Mm-hmm. And adaptation action also creates jobs, uh, and uh, it uh, it uh, comes with uh, superior uh, local benefits. So there are opportunities in investing in adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, globally, you know, we did an assessment as the African Development Bank last year, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. uh, the assessment shows that um, climate action comes with an investment opportunity for Africa, amounting to a total of three trillion US dollar by 2030. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is uh, an, an investment opportunity that uh, needs to be uh, captured by by African countries, by investors, etc., mm-hmm. to to make adaptation a business. It's actually a real business. Um, if you take a sector like energy, uh, there is um, uh, an opportunity of about 32 billion per year in investing in renewable energy by 2030. Mm-hmm. Mm. And, and renewable energy has uh, co-benefit for both mitigation and adaptation. Um, in, in the agriculture sector, for instance, there is an opportunity for climate smart agriculture. Uh, and uh, climate smart agriculture comes with comes with opportunity to increase um, uh, agricultural output and also to enable Africa to feed itself and create jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the cities, for instance, urban development is an opportunity if 
um, we we invest in smart cities. As you know, uh, cities are growing faster than ever in in the developing world, especially in Africa. Mm. And the infrastructure investment that are made in cities in the next few years need to be uh, both uh, low carbon intensive and cl- climate resilient. Yeah. So you need to take that opportunity to invest in those cities that will uh, provide uh, opportunity to reduce vulnerability, to improve air quality and public health, as well as reducing poverty and enhancing safety. Uh, so investing in um, you know smart cities for us uh, is an opportunity to to both you know uh, build your economies and also address uh, uh, vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Another sector that I see as important is natural capital, natural resources. Mm-hmm. Investing in our natural uh, capital in a very sustainable way will come with, op- of, of, with opportunities also for green growth uh, because um, uh, uh, natural capital accounts for between 30 to 50% of total uh, wealth in Africa. Mm-hmm. And um, But we see that this capital, this natural capital is being used uh, unsustainably and uh, some of it, of its, uh, of it is being um, illegally, um, you know, uh, traded. So we believe that um, uh, uh, there is an opportunity if we we implement uh, uh, widely and uh, smartly green growth activities, we'll be able to address these challenges and build uh, sustainability into our natural capital. And just to remind you, this is the Green Economy Series. And today we are talking about adaptation and why it's critical for the continent. This conversation is made possible by a collaboration between the Africa Climate Conversations and the African Development Bank Group. And in particular, it's Climate Change and Green Growth Department. AFDB is the continent's premier development finance institution. And talking of investment, Gareth, financing adaptation is critical if the continent is to achieve the opportunities Alhamdu has just outlined. The African Development Bank has been advocating for the adaptation benefit mechanism. What is this mechanism all about? Yes, well, thank you very much for asking me about that. Maybe before I jump into the adaptation benefits mechanism, I can give a little bit of background about the, um, the reason why we need support for adaptation finance and why uh, the why, why governments around the world have been slow to provide that and why the private sector isn't engaged. So the reason why uh, adaptation and resilience is so important is that if we don't help people become resilient to climate change, and here we talk about households and communities and economies, if we don't make them resilient to climate change, then what happens is that disasters come and they push people backwards into poverty. And and we're seeing that even now at full speed or at accelerated speed with COVID-19. People are pushed back into poverty. And when they fall back into poverty, they have no choice but to consume the natural capital that surrounds them. So that means that they fall back to doing practices which are not sustainable, that are destructive. And we see that in Africa where uh, we have 600 million farmers who rely on rain-fed agriculture, who rely on... Uh, collecting fuel wood for biomass uh, and who farm in unsustainable manners. And all of these things contribute to greenhouse gas emissions. And that is why Africa's major source of greenhouse gas emissions comes from the land use and forestry sector. It's because those people are pushed into situations where they have no choice 
but to use the resources that are around them and they're having a negative impact. So resilience is really important. And if we don't address resilience, then we won't be able to achieve the, the zero emissions target of the Paris Agreement. So uh, the now when we then look at what uh, governments have done to support um, finance, climate finance, we divide this up into mitigation finance and adaptation finance. Yeah. Mitigation finance has done very well. And in fact, there are a lot of policies and strategies and initiatives around that have created a sustainable source of finance to support investment into mitigation and to help create business models that support mitigation. So sort of the most obvious things we see are things like energy tariffs that reflect the cost of generation. Uh, and so if renewable energy is slightly more expensive, that's reflected in the tariff that's charged. Although in fact, in many places, renewable energy is becoming cheaper. We see things like uh, emission trading schemes and carbon taxes that are now quite common in mm. developed countries. And in, for example, in South Africa, they're, they're proposing a carbon tax. Uh, and um, then there's a number of voluntary initiatives. Um, one that's been running for a long time is the Swiss Klimacent, where the Swiss government put a cent on the purchase uh, of a litre of gasoline and diesel. And uh, they used that money to purchase emission reductions from mitigation projects. So there's lots of examples of good mitigation projects and sustainable sources of finance to channel into those projects. But when we look at adaptation, the um, level of understanding and the level of finance for adaptation is much less. There are only a couple of examples of finance for adaptation that I can think of. And one, uh, there was this initiative called the Clean Development Mechanism uh, that was developed under the Kyoto Protocol. And there was a share of proceeds, so 2% of the revenues from the CDM went to supporting adaptation. In fact, it was used to capitalize the adaptation fund. So that was one source of finance. And there's another source, which is the Green Climate Fund, where 50% of their investment is supposed to be channeled to adaptation. But otherwise, there is very little awareness of the need to support adaptation. And really what, is, what, what needs to happen is that governments in developed world and consumers in the developed world or in wealthy countries need to recognize that they have to contribute towards the costs associated with adapting to the impacts that are caused by the greenhouse gas emissions released by the goods and services that we buy. So the mitigation component is the second part of that sentence. It's, you know, we're doing relatively well in dealing with the emissions from the goods and services, but we're not doing very well with the first part of that sentence, addressing the costs associated with the impacts Mm -hmm. uh, that come from those uh, from those greenhouse gas emissions. So we really need governments and consumers to come up with sustainable sources of finance to support adaptation. Mm -hmm. And if we can create that kind of supply of uh, of investment, then we could move on to looking at business models that can support investment into adaptation. And that's where the adaptation benefits mechanism comes into play. Explain a little bit what it is all about and how so it came about. Yes, so well, it came about from actually um, some work that we did uh, to look at other uses for the clean development mechanism. The clean development mechanism was, uh, you know, it was an early and, and in many ways a very successful program to promote investment into mitigation. And what, what happened back in the 1990s, uh, we knew that, for example, renewable energy was a good idea and we knew that it produced electricity with this co-benefit of zero emissions. But renewable energy was more expensive than fossil fuel and renewable energy producers couldn't really compete. 
So we came up with mechanisms that allowed us to pay project developers for delivering emission reductions. And so if you were a renewable energy producer in the early 2000s, you could produce renewable energy and these things called certified emission reductions, and you had two cash flows. And that additional cash flow revolutionized investment into renewable energy. And that's what's really resulted in the uptake that we see of renewable energy now. The prices have come down uh, and, uh, and in many places it's now uh, highly competitive with fossil fuels. So we looked at the clean development mechanism. We said, can't we do the same thing for adaptation? Because adaptation projects also deliver co-benefits. Uh, in the way of making people more resilient to climate change. But the developers don't get any recognition for that. They don't get paid for it. So the adaptation benefit mechanism tries to create a business model whereby we can pay project developers for delivering certified adaptation benefits. And that additional cash flow should be set at such a rate that it overcomes the barriers to investment in adaptation projects. And we think that if we can do that, then actually we could stimulate a lot of private sector investment into the adaptation space. Who can invest in it? Is it the donors or individual countries? So we think that uh, donors and ultimately consumers. Um, so consumers in, in, in wealthy countries really should be contributing towards the cost of adaptation. So, um, you know, my family lives in the UK and, you know, really when they buy goods and services, they should be making a contribution towards paying for the costs of the impacts associated with those goods and services. It's an extension of the polluter pays principle. I mean, there's no reason why we shouldn't do that. So, for example, you could manage this through a very small percentage on VAT, a value-added tax, uh, or a financial transaction tax, or a levy on the purchase of fossil fuels uh, or, or energy. Uh, and that money would be, then be channeled into the purchase of the adaptation benefits. Now, what happens is, uh, what, and what we're proposing is that we create a new uh, financial instrument and we call it an adaptation benefits offtake agreement, which is just like a power purchase agreement. It, it's an agreement that the project developer signs with a credit worthy offtaker. And it says, when you deliver an adaptation benefit, we'll pay you this much money. And if you can get an agreement like that with a credit worthy offtaker, like a fund or a donor, then you can go to a local commercial bank to raise capital. You can go to equity investors, you can go to business partners, and you can bring, uh, you can bring all kinds of capital. So you can bring financial capital in the form of equity and debt, but you can also bring entrepreneurial skills. You can bring what we call sweat equity, where you know partners come and work together to make the project work. You can bring contributions in kind, like labor and land resources and so on, to make those things work. Because you know that if you can produce the adaptation benefit, you're going to get paid. And, and then with that payment, everybody gets a, uh, they get paid out, they, they get a return from their investment. So this, uh, so what we want is, is we want to use this adaptation levy or the funds from developed country consumers mm -hmm. to sign the offtake agreements, which will then stimulate private sector investment. And when I say private sector investment, I mean local, micro, small and medium enterprises in African countries. Uh, uh, not-for-profit organizations, NGOs and so on, they can all come to do these kinds of projects on a small scale and context-specific basis. So you could have community-based organizations, community-based organizations saying, we need support to develop a goat farming program uh, or to look at poultry rearing, but we need some, some, some cash to invest into that. And this mechanism could provide 
uh, that kind of um, of investment, and then the local communities can bring their capital uh, into play. And so we mobilise both finance from developed countries, from donors and from consumers, and we use that to leverage additional investment from local private sector enterprises working in, in the African context. And all of that uh, finance that we mobilise gets added up and can be reported under Article 13 of the Paris Agreement as contributions towards the Global Adaptation Goal and, and also particularly and specifically towards this target of mobilising $50 billion for adaptation. That came from uh, from Copenhagen, this target of $100 billion, 50% of which was for adaptation and 50% for mitigation. So this programme would enable developed countries to report their contributions to that target and to report their contributions to the Global Adaptation Goal under the Paris Agreement. Um, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking of um, just giving you an example and seeing whether I've actually, I, I, I really I do understand and so that the listener out there could actually understand what we are talking about. So, um, for example, let's say um, an, an organization, a CBO or uh, a suicide organization or just a private sector uh, decides, well, uh, lives in Mali and there's a community in a rural area that mainly they are pastoralists. And then so what they want to build resilience for this particular community is by reviving the traditional grazing mechanism. And so um, such a project would fall under this um, uh, adaptation benefit mechanism. They'll be able to uh, get funding from such a project. Yes. So if we take that example of transitioning back to traditional grazing, so I'm, I'm assuming in here, we, we will have to assume a, a certain scenario, but I assume that the barriers to doing that are, uh, the, you know, there may be several barriers. There may be some people that need to be moved off land where they've, you know, where they've settled. Uh, there might be a need to negotiate some sort of settlement. Some people might need to be compensated and uh, maybe the farmers need some financial support for a period of several years until such time as the grazing mechanism is re-established and is working again. So we have a, you know, a range of activities that need to be done and there's some costs associated with that. Yeah. So what we would propose is that those activities would be detailed in an activity design document. Uh, and we, as part of that activity design document, we would say, um, okay, the adaptation benefits that we're going to deliver are going to be steps towards the successful reintegration and re-establishment of the traditional grazing mechanism. Mm -hmm. And we might say, okay, there's a mile, there's four, let's say there's four milestones over a period of four years uh, each year, and you have to achieve each of those milestones. Mm -hmm. And uh, when those milestones have been achieved, then we would pay an agreed price. Now, the thing is, what is the agreed price? We don't know what the agreed price is. So, so we need to see a project document or a, and a cash flow laid out that says these are the costs uh, and this is where we need support. And if we can achieve milestone one, then we need a payment of this much. And if we can achieve milestone two, we need a payment of this much. And then when we get to milestone four, we expect the, the traditional grazing now to be re-established and to be sustainable. And at that point, uh, the, the project needs no further financial support. So we would then take this, uh, this project and this concept and we would put into into what we call our adaptation supermarket. Uh, where we are advertising a range of adaptation projects and we would then want donors and consumers and philanthropists and funds to come and sign the adaptation agreements to purchase those adaptation benefits uh, and, um, uh, and then uh, when they sign that agreement then the project can go ahead and start working. Now, 
if the project is successful and they deliver on their milestones, then they'll get the financial payments. Mm -hmm. If the project is not successful and they don't deliver, then the, the donor, the off-taker, isn't going to pay. And so the, you know, the project developers and the, the communities, community-based organizations, they need to be very confident that they're going to be able to deliver this and they need to work hard to make sure that they achieve the objectives. And uh, we will see as, you know, as we start to do some of these projects, we'll start to get information as to what the costs are. At the moment, we've no idea what the costs might be. So the first two or three projects we do, we'll be feeling it in the dark. But once we've done some of these projects and we've had the data verified, then we will get better information on what it costs to help pastoralists transition back to community-based or, 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 or traditional uh, farming techniques. And we'll have more information about that and we'll be able to ensure better value for money for, uh, for the donors and for the off-takers. So that's a really nice example of how this approach could work. And there, there are many other examples of where we have, uh, you know, the need to create adaptation benefits, but there are financial barriers um, that are, you know, bigger and smaller. Uh, and, um, and, you know, and that we need a, a financial contribution to overcome that mm. um, paid against deliverable outcomes. Okay, so two things that I would want us to address. Um, the issue of writing bankable proposals, because it has been a whole issue in terms uh, in Africa, mainly that has been blamed when it comes to access um, in, in different uh, climate finance mechanism. And another thing that I would also want you to address is the issue of risk, uh, because um, investing in climate adaptation uh, in, in the continent has been, the continent is considered a very high risk when it comes to investment. How do you, this um, mechanism address the issue of risk and also address the issue of writing uh, bankable proposals within Africa? Yes, two very good questions. Let me start with the bankable proposals, uh, yes. first of all. So I, I, I'm fully with you. The clean development mechanism became terribly complicated uh, and uh, the level of expertise required to prepare the project proposals was extremely demanding. There was a reason for that. And, and that reason was that the uh, projects were generating these fungible emission reduction units mm -hmm. that were tradable and that were being used for legal compliance in an international protocol. And there was liability associated with those issues. They had to be extremely accurate uh, because you know people were paying money and could be penalized and prosecuted if they failed to achieve their targets. So the CDM became terribly complicated. The, uh, and, and needed uh, typically northern expertise, uh, European experts to come and do the work and, and it didn't really take off in Africa. Now the adaptation benefit mechanism is a little bit different because we are generating what we are calling certified adaptation benefits. These certified adaptation benefits are not tradable and transferable. A certified adaptation benefit is a packet of information that the ultimate off-taker, the, the, the consumer of that information, uses to make a report under the Paris Agreement. Mm -hmm. So there is no specific target that they have to meet. It's effectively a voluntary process of reporting information about activities that the host country and the off-taker agree are contributing towards adaptation needs. So the most important thing really is that the host country says, yes, this project contributes to our adaptation needs. 
And if you can deliver these adaptation benefits, then we'll be very pleased to report them as contributions towards our adaptation needs. So in that sense, it's a voluntary project. It's um, simple commercial liability. And, you know, that means that if, you know, if you as the off-taker disagree with what your project uh, is producing, you just go to commercial arbitration, you sort it out between yourselves. It's not an international issue. Uh, And also the methodologies, uh, we specifically want the methodologies to be simpler uh, and to identify simple outputs that we can use to verify uh, that we have a high level of confidence will result in in outcomes and impacts. So, for example, if you look at your, your example of the traditional grazing, we might be able to pick up the return to traditional grazing from satellite imagery. Uh, because we would see the change in um, uh, the vegetation uh, probably and, and, and that could be picked up so it would be it, that makes it much easier to do much cheaper to do it can be verified remotely and we can say you know if, if we can see that there's a 30 percent ground cover or an increase in crown cover from from woody species and there's diversity in species then we consider uh, that a, a milestone has been met Mm-hmm. So we look for, for much simpler ways of verifying this information uh, and, um, uh, and that makes the whole project simpler and cheaper. So that deals with sort of the complexity of the thing. We expect it uh, to be able to be you know, developed by, okay, you'll still need consultants, but they can be local consultants. They don't have to be um, sort of European consultants coming in at, at such high cost. Mm-hmm. And on the risk side of it, um, there's a number of ways that we can address this risk. Uh, I mean, for sure, you know, we know adaptation uh, carries a range of risks. And I think Mm -hmm. that as we do early projects, for sure, we'll find some failures uh, and and we can learn from those and uh, and make corrections. But uh, we can also provide uh, an insurance process or a guarantee for the off takers. And we've spoken already with the Green Climate Fund uh, about this, and they indicated that they would be interested in providing a guarantee for the lenders who lend money to these projects. So if you take, for example, a local commercial bank and they agree to lend an adaptation project uh, $2 million and they expect that $2 million to be paid back through the delivery and payment for the adaptation benefits. Now, if the project doesn't work and those adaptation benefits don't get delivered, then the commercial bank has lost out. So the GCF said that they would be interested in providing a guarantee facility that could pay that $2 million back to the local commercial bank if the project fails. So, uh, you know, that kind of a guarantee instrument can uh, can provide real support to developing these kinds of activities uh, and take away quite a lot of the risk associated with it. And then finally, the the point that I made about it being the local uh, micro, medium, and, and small enterprises, micro, small, and medium enterprises through mm-hmm. investing. Those are people who live with these risks on a day to day basis. They're already bought into those risks. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it doesn't really matter to them. I mean, you know, they live in a country where there's a political risk. Well, so what? I mean, that's just life. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, they, they, they live with that on a day to day basis. Uh, whereas obviously external investors coming in may say, oh no, that country's too risky. But that's why you know we think that this ability to do the small-scale, context-specific adaptation projects is so important. Absolutely. Gareth in Alhamdu, thank you so much for joining me today. Unfortunately, that's all the time we had, uh, and I appreciate you both uh, taking time for this conversation. That's great. Well, thank you very much indeed. It's been a real pleasure. If your listeners want to learn a little bit more about it, you can just Google 
ASDB Adaptation Benefit Mechanism and you'll find our website very easily. Uh, and there's lots of information there about the work that we're doing uh, and our plans for moving forward. Uh, and we're still hopeful that we're going to be able to raise some finance uh, to do some work prior to COP26 mm -hmm. in Glasgow next year, where we hope to uh, be able to have some side events and present our results and so on, and uh, try to get some more buy-in from some of the major donor countries. So thank Thanks. you very much indeed for uh, uh, for your time. That was Gareth Phillips and Alhamdu Dosuma, both from the African Development Bank Group, talking about adaptation, why it's critical for the continent in adaptation benefit mechanism championed by the African Development Bank. My sincere gratitude to the African Development Bank Group, in particular its Climate Change and Green Growth Department, whose collaboration with the African Climate Conversations has made this conversation possible. AFDB is the continent's premier development finance institution. Remember, this podcast is available on our website, Africa Climate Conversations, Google, Apple Podcasts, and every other channel you access your podcasts from. Please do not forget to share this podcast. Remember, someone on your network would really, really benefit from this information. But do you have a question or a topic you'd want us to discuss? Well, kindly feel free to email me using info at africaclimateconversations.com. Until next week, have a productive and safe week ahead. <music>